0: Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 19. We're going to really start reading at verse 11 in just a moment. Revelation chapter 19. Uh, beginning at verse eleven, John writes concerning what he saw. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire and burning—excuse me, the lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh. I'm going to read three verses from the next chapter to get this in But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Let's pray. Gracious God, we ask you now to bless us in your word. As you have a warning at the end of this book not to add or take away from the things that are written, help us to be faithful in reading it and expounding it. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations, the thoughts of all our hearts, would be acceptable in your sight through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so here we are. Chapter 19. A lot is going on here, obviously. Getting toward the end of the book, not just of Revelation, but of the Bible. This is the last book that was given. There's controversy about its date, but the universal uh, understanding generally in the early church and uh, since that time has been that it was written in the latter part of the 20th century. Uh, and that it excuse me of the first century I was going to say that would be kind of hard to do huh? uh, that it was written uh, toward the end of John's life as God gave him this when he was in exile under the Domitian uh, persecutions of the Emperor Domitian and so he wrote this and so he saw things happening and so in chapter 19 we, we've covered a lot of ground. we've seen the rise of this monstrosity, this this woman the, the referred to as the, the the, the whore of Babylon, this harlot who he sees her in uh, the previous chapters that she's riding on a uh, seven-headed beast with ten horns and, uh, or ten crowns rather and she, she's got a chalice in her hand and she's a golden chalice and she's drunk with the blood of the saints uh, and she's arrayed in all types of finery and John was amazed when he saw this there may have been actually an external beauty to the whole picture, except the, the thing she was on was a horrible-looking creature. And she herself, you know, she had all the, I was think of the, the, the old Irish song, had he gone and asked his father <laughs> if things would have been different, uh, where he talks about a guy f- falls in love with a woman, and he says that he, it might have all been different had he seen her in daylight. Um, that, you know, that's the way kind of the, the, the horror of Babylon was. It might look good from a distance, but it was a a beast and a a horrible, unfaithful woman is what he saw. Well, then we read on and we see that the beast has destroyed what we have in the earlier chapters of this vision of John's, where you see this woman on a beast later, it transitions from being a woman to being a city. The city that sits upon seven hills and that rules over the kings of the earth. And we saw in the last chapter that that city was destroyed and that the merchants of the earth lamented and mourned and cast dust on their heads because all their hopes for profit were now gone. And they saw the smoke of her torment rising up. And they uh, cry out and said that in one hour, in other words, in an instant, she's destroyed. And their, their fire ascends up. And so the city is wiped out and destroyed. Now, it's pretty clear it's referring to Rome in that picture and spiritual Rome is what's really before us so the question comes up well will will the city of Rome be destroyed itself and that's a possibility because you know you have symbols this book is symbolic so you have the symbols of this book and then the reality behind them and sometimes the symbol is really close to the thing itself and there are other things in the book of Revelation that are just declaratory when it says Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords that's not a symbol that's a statement So there are things that are not symbolic. There are other things that, like the the woman on the the beast, that's obviously not an actual physical woman on a physical beast, some monstrosity. That's a picture of something that's really scary. generally understood to be the governments of the world uh, that have given themselves over to the beast or have given themselves over to the Scarlet church. uh, And there's a lot going on. So we come now to chapter 19. In the first part, we saw that that last week, that while the earth was mourning, the men in the world, those who had received the mark of the beast, those whose allegiance was to Satan uh, and to his kingdom, we saw that when the city was destroyed, this wicked city of, of spiritual Babylon was destroyed, they're lamenting and crying. And then the scene shifts. And John says in chapter 19, he says, after these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. So where earth is mourning because of economic collapse and the destruction of this wicked system, the saints in heaven are praising God. They rejoice because they see this wicked thing has been done away with. The one thing that's wonderful about these prophecies. Yeah, we may disagree on certain things I'm what they call classic post mill I think there's actually a millennium coming up ahead probably about a thousand years maybe exactly a thousand years a time of revival and of glory and wonderful things so they say well no I think that's symbolic of the present time you know and the Satan was bound at the cross and I think eh, I think Satan's going to be bound in a unique way soon but in the future so we might disagree on some of those things we might disagree on on a few other stuff like What's the exact nature of some of these symbols? But the one thing that's really clear, there's a time coming when these wicked institutions and this spiritual blindness that manifests itself in just evil things is going to be gone. I believe there's coming a time when I pray about abortion. You know, We want it gone. It's an evil thing. Uh, there's going to come a time when people's eyes will be open on this. You know, we want to see people come to faith in christ and there's that blindness that veil it's over the, the hearts of the jewish people as a majority there's still an elect among them who has been all through the whole period uh, since christ came there's been a lot of saved people of jewish background that have come to faith in jesus as the messiah but the majority of, of israel the majority of the jews have rejected him that has to do a lot with the false teachings the rabbis have spewed forth and just It was prophesied that Israel would turn their backs on their Messiah. He is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows, it says in Isaiah 53, and we esteemed him not. So the rejection of Jesus by the Jews, if you know your Bible, it's not like, oh, nobody saw that coming. Isaiah prophesied about it 800 years before it happened. But that veil is going to be lifted. If you read Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, it's very clear. The Jewish people, Israel... They will be regrafted back into the church. There's coming a time when the Jews will be, as a majority, saved people. Also in Isaiah 11, it talks about the veil that's over the eyes and the hearts of the Gentiles will be lifted. There's going to come a time when that, that there's still going to be, you know, if somebody's not born again, they're still going to be dead in trespasses and sins, okay? But there's coming a time when that blindness, it's, where's this coming from? It's like there's a spiritual thing happening here. Something's put a veil over their hearts. And Paul talks about that. He said, "If our gospel is hid, it's hid to those from those that are lost, whom the God of this age is blinded. Well, there's coming a time when, when Satan won't be able to do that, and the gospel is going to go forth in power. I think that's what we're reading about at the latter part of chapter 19, and we'll get to that in just a moment. The point is, all this wicked system is going to be gone. You know, the lies of these false religions, whether it's Romanism or just liberal Protestantism or all these weird cults and these false teachings, when somebody comes forth and starts preaching some weird heresy, if that should happen, the majority of people are going to go, no, sorry, that's not according to the Bible. It's happened once before during the Reformation in, in Puritan England. People heard the scriptures. They were reading their Bibles all the time. And they, If you read Pilgrim's Progress, when John Bunyan writes about the the journey of, of, in his story of Christian going to the celestial city, it's just filled with scripture. And John Bunyan, you know, he was a preacher. He was a Baptist preacher, and he loved the Lord. He spent a lot of time in jail because they kept saying, you don't have authorization to preach. And he said, yeah, I do. It's from Jesus, not from the Church of England. And so they put him in prison. But he continued to write, and when he got out, he still preached. And if you know anything about it but he knew the bible and when he published his book pilgrim's progress people that read it go wow this is awesome and it was just filled with scripture because people were thinking in those terms we see this in that, at that period there was a small period of time wasn't a thousand years it wasn't the millennium it was just a period of time when god sent revival and true reformation to england and to other countries also in the netherlands and elsewhere uh, People knew the word. Well, eventually, though, you had different things start to happen when the enemy was not asleep, and so he ended up corrupting the Church of England, and um, many of the other churches followed suit, and then he got into the seminaries, and so you had preachers coming out that didn't really believe the Bible. And we saw things go from bad worse. But there's coming a time when the enemy won't be able to do that, when those veils will be lifted, when the gospel will go forth in power. I think that's what chapter... 19 beginning at verse 11 is talking about so there we read john says i saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war well someone said oh this is the second coming and i don't believe that's what we have in front of us here at the second coming the Bible's very clear when the second coming comes christ isn't going to humble the nations and then rule over them that's what it says here if you notice. Uh, when it says his eyes, the further description of Christ, his eyes were a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Okay, that means if you really want to know Jesus, you've got to learn who he is from himself. Remember in Matthew 11, Jesus said, No man knows the Son but the Father. Neither does anyone know the Father except the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son wills to reveal him. So Christ knows himself, he knows the Father and the Holy Spirit. God knows himself thoroughly. He's an infinite being, and so being infinite, he has infinite knowledge of who he is. We're finite, so our knowledge of God is limited. (coughs) that's why we have to keep going to God's Word. The Bible is, it's a limited revelation, but it comes from the one that knows everything about everything. So God gave it to us so that we could truly know him. But Jesus said, or it says here that he has a neighbor wherein that no one knew except himself. That doesn't mean he's not pleased to communicate who he is to those that trust him, but it means that ultimately that knowledge, the fullness of who he really is and his glory, it abides in himself. We have to know the Lord on his terms. You know, sometimes I, I know when we've talked about the sovereignty of God, and I, I think I've shared this with you before, and some of you have had a similar experience where people will go, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. You know, we talk about election or something like that. Yeah. It's like, well, I don't know about your fake Jesus, but the real one does do those things because that's what it says in the Bible he does, okay? Uh, To know Jesus, you have to go by his word, by what he says, okay? Uh, So we can know him, and we don't need to have, like, well, my Jesus is different, you know? No, your Jesus better be the one of the Bible or he's not going to save you. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and he told them he was worried that they might accept another Jesus. when that's not real. You look at some of the cults, the way they define who Christ is. It's like, that's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not who who the Lord is. We need to know Jesus according to what the revelation of God given in Scripture says about him and how he revealed himself in history and in Scripture. So this one, he has a name that no one knew but he himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, saturated in blood from the slaughter of God's enemies. But note, it says, and his name is called the Word of God. Now, Jesus is referred to as the Word, John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and when apart from him, nothing was made that has been made. That means he's not a creature. If everything that's created was created through Jesus or by Jesus, that takes him out of the realm of being a creature, because you have to say everything except him was created by him, but he was created by the Father, something like That's what the, some of the cults try to say. No, it says everything that's created was created by him. That means Jesus is not a creature. Now, he does have a created human nature that he took in time. But as to his person, as John just said in verse 1, he is God. Okay, he has a divine nature and now a human nature joined together in his person. But his name is called the Word of God. And I think this is a symbol for who Jesus is. It's telling us he is the Word of God. But it also has to do with the gospel itself, the preaching of it. And then we're told in the armies in heaven... Clothed in fine linen, they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, white and clean. Followed him on white horses. So we have this one going forth who's called faithful and true, and he's followed by the armies of heaven, his own people. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. Then it says, and he sh- himself will rule them with the rod of iron. This isn't Christ destroying the nations. This is him subduing the nations by his word and the armies of heaven. And you know who the armies of heaven are? The church. We're seated in the heavenly places. Read Ephesians chapter 2, the first few verses. It says we've been co-raised with Christ and we're co-seated with him in the heavens. Legally, the same way you were legally at the cross 2,000 years ago, if you're a believer, you were at the cross 2,000 years ago. So how could that be? I didn't get born until whatever year it was, you know. Well, you weren't there personally. You were there by your representative, Jesus Christ. And he stood for you and as you when he suffered. So legally, in God's eyes, you were crucified that day. Legally, in God's eyes, when Jesus underwent the pains of hell, you underwent the pains of hell because your substitute legally was you. Okay, and so you suffered those things. And now God counts you as being raised because when Jesus was raised from the dead, legally he was representing you. So you're already resurrected in Christ. You say, well, wait a minute, but what about now? You're seeing the application (coughs) of that salvation that Jesus purchased for you. And we're experiencing that. So we're co-raised and we're co-seated in heaven. (coughs) This is an important point. You're already in heaven legally. So it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, let's say you show up somewhere, you know, you want to go to a country club or something, and uh, they say, who are you? Oh, well, legally it says here you, you have entrance, you're already here legally, so sure, come on in. Your position in heaven is in Christ, not in you, it's not based on you personally, as to your merit or good works, okay? And so... You belong to him. So that's why, you know, this is the armies in heaven. Well, who's that? Well, we're seated in the heavenly places in Christ. We refer to the church in heaven where the for the, the saints that have died and gone there. That's the church triumphant. They fought their fight here on earth. They're now with the Lord. We're part of the church militant. And that's the ones that go forth and fight the Lord's battles. If you notice this passage, this is the church militant being discussed. Okay? Um, and so we see this army going forth with Christ. A sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth, that with it he should strike the nations, and he will rule them with the rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. In other words, the time is coming when there's going to be short uh, time between men being men sinning and the punishment. Christ treads the winepress of God Almighty. So he comes forth, and this rod, the, the sword that comes out of his mouth we're told in Hebrews, that's the word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, if you remember that. Uh, in the fourth chapter of the book of, of Hebrews, it says, For the word of God is quick, it means alive and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And There's an interesting transition that happens here. First we're talking about the, the Bible, the word, the scriptures. And this ends by talking about the person of Christ. Because they're they're together. For the word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word, when the Holy Spirit accompanies it in power, it cuts right to the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened, unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, or to whom we must give account. It transitions, because here the, you, you say, well, it seems like the word of God's being personified. It's talking about Jesus, but it's talking about the word of God. It's exactly what's going on, I believe, in chapter 19. The word of God goes forth, sent by Christ. It's the word that comes out of his mouth, that with it he should smite the nations. It says, well, yeah, but he kills all of them. You know what? If you're born again, you died you remember Paul in Romans chapter 7, when the word of God, the gospel came to him and showed him that he was a sinner, dead in trespasses and sins, convicted him, and then he met Jesus and got saved. He says in Romans chapter 7 verse 9, he says, for I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, those thou shalt nots, it showed him that because he was doing what it said not to do. And what it said thou shalt, he wasn't doing it, and the Holy Spirit convicted him of sin he said so i was alive without the law once but when the commandment came sin revived and i died paul was alive physically when he wrote that what he means is that spiritually i was shown that i was a dead man spiritually i wasn't alive toward god i didn't love the lord the law came and showed me what a wicked sinner i was that i needed to save that was the purpose of the law Paul says in Romans, by the law is the knowledge of sin. So Paul became aware of the fact that he was dead in trespasses and sins. Someone said, well, when he's slaying the nations, could it possibly be that It could be. But we go on. And so he has a robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, the reason why I don't think this is the second coming, when the second coming comes, there's not going to be any ruling over the nations. There's going to be a judgment take place. There's going to be the lake of fire for the wicked, and there's going to be the entrance into the new heavens and new earth of those that have been redeemed. Peter wrote in Second Peter chapter 3, he says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust." And saying, where is the promise of his coming? Note that. That's the the thing he's talking about. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. That's the, the theory of uniformitarianism. Nothing's changed. There's never been any judgment on the earth. Peter says, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition, meaning destruction of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise what promise people say oh that's the promise of salvation really no you do not read what we read it's the promise of his second coming Peter's saying the lord is not slack concerning his promise there's a reason why jesus hasn't come back yet and then he tells us the lord is not slack by the way so when people use this for salvation you know and say oh well that's talking about salvation there well in one sense of course it is but Peter's talking about why Jesus hasn't returned yet. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise. There's a day appointed when Christ will return. He says he's not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word well, this epistle is addressed to the beloved. The same people. It's the second epistle, as we just read, this second epistle. first, first Peter, if you go back and read it in the first few verses, it's addressed to the elect of God, scattered throughout the world. And so... This is, he's saying he's long-suffering toward us. God has a people that he's chosen. They're not all saved yet. That's why Jesus hasn't come back. That's what he's saying. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, or to usward, not willing that any should perish. Some say, oh, well, see, uh, that's what you know, God wants. You know, he's elected everyone. He's just waiting for man to make his choice. That's not what this is teaching. He's not willing that any of his elect should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the context, whether you like it or not. That's what this is saying. And he's saying Jesus hasn't come back yet because the full number of the elect have not yet been gathered in. They haven't been saved. The Lord carries. Some of them haven't been born yet. If Jesus would have come back in 1832 or something like that, you wouldn't have had to worry about it. You wouldn't have existed. If you'd been born, if you came to faith in Christ At a certain point in your life, if he'd returned before that, you would have been in trouble because you were a child of wrath before the Holy Spirit applied the salvation that Jesus had purchased for you. Paul says we were children of wrath even as the others. So you weren't saved just because you were physically born. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. All right. He goes on, though, because he's talking about the second coming. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. This earth's going to be burned up, and the people that are not saved are going to still be on the earth when that happens. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting Unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein righteousness dwells. And So we see here in the uh, coming of the Lord, his actual second coming, it's going to be with fire, and the earth is going to be destroyed. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says the same thing when he writes to them. He says, Seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation, trouble, to them that trouble you, and to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Because our testimony among you was believed in that day. So the second coming of Christ is not him coming to subdue the nations. His second coming is the end of the world. And that's spoken of, actually, because we read that after the millennial period, uh, when when Satan is let loose out of his Prison, for, for a thousand years in chapter 28 verse 7. Uh, there we read as John wrote in chapter 20 verse 7. He says, Now when the thousand years have expired Satan will be released from his prison. And will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog. And those are generally uh, terms used to express the far, far nations away from Israel in, in Old Testament times. Gog and Magog, some try to say, well, it could be the Germans, it could be the Russians, it could be, But it's Gog and Magog, okay, the enemies of God. Uh, The nations far away, though, it says, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, so it's like there's going to be some real heavy persecution begin at the end of the millennial period. And then note what it says at the end of verse 9. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. That's what we just read about in 1 Thessalonians, I believe, and 2 Peter chapter 3. The second coming of Christ takes place at the end of this period of the millennium. And the devil who deceived them, at that point, is not cast into the bottomless pit, he's cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And then he says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. Exactly what Second Peter 3 is saying. And I saw the dead, no, not the living, he said, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So there's going to be a general resurrection. All men will be raised up, and they will stand before him. Jesus talks about that in John's Gospel. The hour is coming and now is when those that are in the graves will hear his voice, that is the voice of Christ, and will come forth. Those that have done good, meaning that their sins were taken away, so the only thing left to account for are what the Holy Spirit brought forth in them. Those that have done good to the resurrection of life. Those that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. So there's going to be a general resurrection. That's what this is saying. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God. And the books, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. See, God keeps record of everything you say. Jesus said, every idle word that men speak, they will give account thereof in the day of judgment. Paul talked about when men stand before God, their thoughts will either accuse them or excuse them. Every thought you've ever had has been recorded in heaven. God knows everything you've done, all those secret things you thought nobody was looking. It's recorded by God in the books in heaven. And on judgment day, it's all getting open. And that's what this says. And I saw the dead small and great standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, He who hears my word... That's the word of the gospel and believes on him who sent me has, present tense, everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has already passed out of death into life. Those who believe on Jesus have already been judged. If you're a believer, you were judged at the cross. Now, the Bible does teach we're going to give an account of ourselves to Christ when he returns. There will be that form of judgment, but it won't be to see whether or not you're worthy to enter into heaven. That was settled at Calvary for you, beloved. Praise God. Good to know. Okay. But here he says, The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So everything you've ever done is going to come up. You won't be able to lie your way out of it. You won't be able to excuse yourself. God's truth will be manifested. Everything, your motivation will be shown. And that's why I've said before, you know, when this happens... It's a terrible thing to think that there are going to be men and women thrown into the lake of fire to burn for eternity with no relief and no hope in the fiery storms of the lake of fire as has been described by others. It's a horrible thought. But I believe that when everything is brought out on the day of judgment, and I've said this before, when sin is shown to be what it really is, in all of its ugliness and its hatefulness, Nobody's going to have a problem with the wicked being thrown into hell. It's going to be absolutely according to God's justice. And we're going to praise God for that. It's where they belong. Like I said, you know, if we were to say, oh, you know, Hitler's going to go to hell, nobody would go, oh, that's so sad to hear. We'd go like, yeah, okay? On the Day of Judgment, we're going to find out that sin really is hell-deserving. You need to remember this, beloved. God deals with you patiently, me also. When we sin, what we do is hell-deserving. But because of Christ, who took your hell on himself at the cross, God deals with you gently, and he forgives your sins. He pardons your iniquities, and he receives you as his own child, and he's working to get that garbage out of your life. So we can praise God. But here we see, uh, they were judged according to the things that were written in the book. So don't think you're getting away with anything. Okay, Paul said, some men's sins uh, go before them other men's sins follow them to judgment they follow after in other words some people deal with their sins in this life by coming to christ for forgiveness that's good you want to dealt with now it's nice to know if you have to go in court you've been accused of something and you know you're guilty and maybe we'll just say it's something you're going to have to pay a heavy fine for it's nice to know on the way to court as you're walking there if your attorney turns to you and says oh by the way the, the the penalty the it's been paid Wait a minute, I have to go before the judge? Yeah, you do. It's a formality. You do have to appear before him. But the, 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 the fine has been paid. That's a lot different from the guy that's walking up and he says, you're in trouble, man, because the fine has been paid. Not for you, because you never asked for it. You never received it. It was never done on your behalf, whether you asked for it or not. Okay. So for us, if you are a Christian, the hell that you have merited by your wicked works, I don't think you haven't merited it, Been taken care of. Jesus paid the price for you. He died for you. He underwent hell when he said, "My God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me?" That was Christ experiencing the pains of hell in His eternal person, in His human in His human nature, so that you're not going to have to experience that. But for the rest, they didn't come to faith in Christ. Christ hadn't taken away their sins. The and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. Each one according to his works. So like I say, don't think, don't fool yourself into thinking you're getting away with anything. God sees everything you're doing. And then we're told, and death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Pretty sobering thought. Now we go back to chapter 19 just to wrap it up. So we see Christ returns, the word goes forth, the sword out of his mouth slays the nations, and he begins to rule over them. And then in chapter 20, we read of this thousand year period, which I think the symbol corresponds pretty closely to the reality. There's going to be a period when the nations will be subdued. The beast and the false prophet, we're told, will be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, let's read that, though. So verse 17 says then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice. And he stands in the sun that means it's clear, okay? And he cries out with a loud voice. No confusion. Saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. Now we saw in the last chapter that the great city, the the harlot city was destroyed. And so you, you might say, looking at this like, well the Beast though and the false prophet are still running around. Say, yeah, their headquarters was destroyed. The institution itself, or whatever it was, that was smashed. That blew up. That was burned in the fire. But there's still the army in the field. There's still the army that's out there. Okay? That was a problem during the American Civil War. You know, they captured Richmond, but they still had all these Confederate armies out in the field. It's like what do we do now? A lot of them are still armed. They haven't surrendered. So they went to him and said, you guys do know that Richmond's been captured. General Lee surrendered at Appomattox, the Army of Northern Virginia." So the other guys then started surrendering. These are enemies that don't want to surrender. These guys are in opposition and hatred toward the one that sits on the white horse. So the angel goes forth, and we see that God is the one that initiates this. This is interesting. He says that you may eat, it says to the birds and the fowls of heaven, uh, that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them, and the pleasure of all people free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies, gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army." OK, Christ just wiped out their city. OK? These guys are, we see how stupid sin makes people. Sadly, we've experienced that, a lot of us, in our own lives. OK? These guys are going up against the one who is God Almighty in the flesh. Okay. God manifested in the flesh. And they're like, hey, you know what? Nobody can defeat the beast. Who can make war against Tim? And yeah, okay, well, sure, the Son of God is coming back, you know, and sure, this great revival is happening. We can oppose it. We're going to stop this. So they all gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. That would be against the church. And then, no, then the beast was captured. Wait a minute, I thought this great beast was invincible. Hey, he might be until he goes up against Jesus. Okay, then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. That's the second one that you know that we read about earlier, uh, who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast. So the second one, this false prophet, he was able to do miracles, or it looked like he was able to do it. But it does say he was able to do signs in the present in the presence of the beast. Um, By which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, those who were already given over to wickedness, uh, and those who worshipped his image. So the followers of this satanic, wicked system are taken. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire. These are the leaders of this rebellion. God deals with them. They're thrown the lake of this first mention of the lake of fire in the Bible, uh, specifically as that term. We do have Christ speaking of Gehenna uh, in the Gospels, which seems to pretty well correspond to a place of fire and burning. And so here it says, These two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. So the leaders of this are gone. That's why I say if this is referring to the institutions of false religions and corruption, they're going to be gone. Okay, They're cast into the lake burning uh, of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword. Now that means either they physically died or perhaps what we read about what Paul said. They were slain, but in such a way that God had mercy on them. Because remember, he's coming to subdue the nations. Uh, The rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. Uh, And then it says, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. In other words, they were wiped out. So their city was destroyed. The army still in the field wouldn't surrender. That's the way the world is. Men left to themselves, and it says the natural man is at enmity against God. That means he's in a state of warfare. And it says the carnal mind does not submit to the law of God. It can't. It's incapable to do that. And that's why it says those who are in the flesh cannot please God, because they're in an attitude of warfare against him. They need to find mercy. Their heart needs to be changed. They need to be born again. That happens by the work of the Spirit. So we see this, say I'm quite convinced in the context that this takes place before the millennial period and that this is symbolic language referring to the Word of God who is the person of Christ but not his physical person. The Word of God going forth in what we would say is a great revival in this wicked institution and all those that have promoted it are destroyed and basically thrown into hell. And I think we're going to see that. When that's going to happen? Maybe in our generation, I don't know. You know, when, when is Christ going to return? Some say, well, what if you're wrong on this and Jesus is coming any day? I'm okay with that. All right, all right. I want to see Jesus. Okay, either I'm going to go to be with him, or he's going to come back and we're going to see him. But either way, there'll be a resurrection. We're going to see Jesus. We're going to, and if we die before he returns, we're going to be with him. The Bible, I don't believe, teaches the imminency of the return of Christ. I don't think you have to believe he could come any minute. You know, hey, don't go to school, don't get an education, because Jesus could come any minute. Hey, don't try to change things politically because Jesus could come any minute. Don't polish brass on a sinking ship. You know, you've heard that, and I've talked about that before. You shouldn't polish brass on a sinking ship. This world's going to be destroyed. Let it get more and more rotten. Well, guess what? You know, because people have believed that foolishness, uh, as I've said, we end up living on a garbage scow run by pirates because nobody want to get involved. You need to speak up politically, socially, familially, individually. You're here because Christ put you here at this time in history. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Christ rules over the nations by his word. The problem is they don't recognize that. But they're wrong. So, well, you know, the Bible shouldn't have any part in our government. That's a lie. Okay, nothing in the Bible says this is just for the church. The Bible is God's word. It controls every sphere of life. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords. Somebody's in political office and they're not doing what God's word says to do. By that I mean in the moral standards and the other thing. We need to call them on it. Say, hey, you know what? You can't be a liar. You can't be a thief. You can't do wicked things. You can't promote immorality and pass laws that are in direct opposition to what God has said because He's going to hold you accountable. Well, the time's coming when people will get that. When that veil is lifted, they'll go, yeah, you're right, huh? And we'll hopefully begin to see godly rulers. I don't believe we have to believe in the imminency of Christ's return. But we do have to believe in the certainty of it. Jesus is coming again. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. He said, don't let anyone, either by letter or spirit or word, as if from us, that the day of Christ was at hand. He said, for that day is not going to come till the man of sin shows up. So Jesus told the, Paul told the Thessalonians, he waved them off of that doctrine of imminency. He said, don't believe that. Okay? But be assured of the certainty of his return, and it could be today. It could be more than a thousand years away. If we lived a thousand years ago, by the way, in, around the you know the turn of the when it became 1,000, a lot of people oh the millennium is going to start. Okay, uh, it didn't happen. Year 2,000, Wow, ah, it might start. It might. Okay, I've got my own ideas as to when it's going to start. I hope it starts soon. Okay. Uh, but when God's pleased to bring these things about, He's got his time schedule set. Our job is to be faithful in our generation. Christ is going to bind Satan, He's going to conquer the nations, His word's going to prevail, but there's still going to be sin in the world, okay? In Isaiah 65, in the Old Testament, there is a description of this period, I believe, that t- speaks of the, the new heavens, meaning I, I think there's this period. Uh, where truth prevails. And Isaiah 65, Isaiah wrote, and we'll close with this, he said, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind, Come into mine. But be, be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, a rejoicing, I believe that's a reference to the church, and her people a joy. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. And the voice of weeping shall be no more heard in her, nor the voice of crying. There shall be no more thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. So see, well, that's talking about eternity, isn't it, in heaven? Well, read on. For the child shall die a hundred years old. There's still death in this. That's talking about this world right here. But the sinner, being a hundred years old, shall be a curse. There's still going to be sinners in the world during the millennial period. But the emphasis is that that's going to be the minority. And they shall build houses and inhabit them. And they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. So they're not going to be oppressed and harassed. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree are the days of my people. Some say, well, maybe human life will be expanded uh, or extended, possibly. Uh, The days, as the days of a tree are the days of my people. And mine elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth for trouble. It has to do with children there. For they are the seed of the blessed of the Lord, and their offspring with them. Note three generations there. The blessed of the Lord, those who are born of them, and in their children with them. It's one of the reasons why we have covenant baptism of children in Reformed churches, because we believe this promise. God includes the children of believers with them in his covenant. And it shall come to pass, I love this in reference to our children, that before they call, I will answer. You know, when our children begin to call on the Lord, Lord save you know, God already made provision. He put you in a Christian family, uh, let you go to church. You were received by baptism into the visible membership of the church with God's promises to your parents. Before they speak, I will hear. That's true of our children when they begin to call on the Lord. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. It's talking about two diverse natures, okay? I was he just talking about, like, you know, uh, you know the, the French and the Norsemen, you know, are going to get along, okay? Uh, the wolf and the lamb, people who have a wolf-like characteristics as to their uh, demeanor and culture. And lambs, people perhaps more civilized in general. They shall feed together. And the lion shall eat straw like the bullock. And dust shall be the serpent's meat. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. There's good days ahead, beloved. And whatever we have to go through, God's in control. Jesus will conquer the nations, I do believe, by his word. And there will be a judgment at the end of the history of this earth. So, uh, go to Jesus. Be prepared. Call on him. Okay? Uh, We have a lot to do in our generation. So we see this. The word of God goes forth in power. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope you give us in Christ that we will see him again and that even now we have eternal life because he loved us and died for us and cleanses us with his precious blood. Lord, continue your work in us. Build up your church, Lord Jesus. Extend the the borders of your kingdom. We pray that you would bring in the nations, the Gentiles, and the Jewish people, Lord. Save them, open their eyes, and do the same for us here so that we would love you and trust in you and not have to be afraid either of what this world throws at us or be uh, afraid of of your coming, Lord, but that we would look forward to it with joy. So bless us now, we pray, and we thank you for your word. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. And I believe we have a song to sing.